0: John chapter 9 is where we're at this morning. I'm going to jump right in, uh, tell you a little bit about the story. This is kind of a—let a, me pray real quick, and then we'll just jump right in, okay? So, Jesus, we ask you right now that you would open our hearts, our minds, our imagination to what it is that you want to do here in this place. God, I pray that you'd use your word to um, just breathe life into our souls. God, those areas where we're just parched and dry, um, give us all that we need. Those areas, God, where we just need a word from you, God, um, break the silence that we are, in some cases, maybe suffering under, and speak to us. Um, God, give us everything that we need. You know every single uh, challenge and hardship that has been brought into this room, and have your way here this morning, and breathe life. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So John chapter 9, real quick, is really the story of a blind man who receives his sight. Um, Ultimately, he comes back. Um, Jesus ultimately is the one that is the miracle worker in this particular context, of course. The story is, uh, you know, not without controversy or plot twist or resolution, which is an amazing resolution that Jesus actually does something phenomenal at the very end. The story is actually kind of broken down into like six Chapters, there's six phases or six scenes that I've kind of written down up here. Um, we'll go through each one. We'll see how far we can go. Um, no promises that we're going to make it through the entire chapter. It's kind of my aim, but I don't want to go too fast to where we kind of miss some of the important stuff that's here. Um, but if I need to stop at some point because we've kind of gone over our time, then we'll just save the rest for next week. So again, just like you guys know the typical routine, it'll be one sermon over like two different weeks, all right? That'll kind of be where we will head with this. So um, uh, in the Gospel of John so far, we've uh, as we've been making our way through this great book, just chapter by chapter, verse by verse, like segment by segment, story by story, we've seen John kind of like craft the Gospel of John around... Seven, seven different signs that appear. There's seven different signs that John is kind of framing the entirety of his storytelling about the life of Jesus. Um, John tells at the very end of the gospel why he's even writing this story in the first place. His whole aim is so that you have enough information about who Jesus is that you, as an individual, would trust Jesus, that's John's aim, his agenda. He kind of like straight out there, gives it to you very bluntly. Is like, my hope is that as you read the story, I'm going to tell you about Jesus, that you too will also come to faith and have your life radically transformed by this person, Jesus. So, John wants to bring us into the story by framing everything around these uh, variety of different signs. Um, This is another uh, miracle, or actually, in the gospel account, the third actual physical healing that Jesus brings about. So, let's jump right in and take a look at the variety of movements or chapters or Uh, scenes that we're going to take a look at here so scene number one starts basically with an introduction it tells us a little bit about where the story kind of came from where it's beginning to go so let's go ahead and read that and we'll make some comments as we go then we'll move on to scene number two um, and I do have, like, scene titles over each one of these. So scene number one, as I already mentioned, is an introduction. Scene number two is going to be confusion. Scene number three is this interrogation. Scene four is the investigation. Scene five is excommunication. Yes, everything ends with an Asian. shouldn't. Uh, and then lastly, six. scene six is this restoration, which I promise you we will not get to today. It's really good, so do not miss next week especially. So let's jump right in. John chapter Uh, 9, verse 1, we'll read through verse 1 to 7. And he, that's Jesus, passed by, and he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, It is not that this man sinned, or that his parents sinned, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is still day. Night is coming. When no one will work as long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world Verse six having said these things he spit on the ground Is one of those plot twist moments He spit on the ground made mud with his saliva Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and he said go wash in the pool of siloam, which means sent And then he went and washed and came back Seeing so there's the introduction. There's the whole basic story in one nice beautiful paragraph of what's going to happen. Now, the story kind of unfolds or kind of telescopes outward, and we enter into some of the drama and the challenges and the hardships that kind of unfold throughout there that ultimately lead to conflict and whatnot, in this guy's excommunication and so on and so forth. But we'll get there in due time. Um, a couple of things before we even jump in, I want to just make a couple of notes, uh, several things uh, in this passage i think are noteworthy number one um is this historical location of siloam this is kind of an interesting thing is um i'll show you some little photos and apologize for about the very very pixelated picture that's up there at the very center of this um but i want to talk about it real quickly so uh the pool siloam is 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 fascinating in fact if you go on and just do a google search right now um type in pool siloam you're going to bring up a lot of more recent articles that were just written this is one that just came up called Steps Where Jesus Heals Blind Man, discovered after 2,000 years, um, written by this particular gal, S- September 8, 2023, so just a couple days ago. Um, they have had some astronomical advances in terms of uh, archaeological discoveries of the Pool of Siloam specifically. So I thought, oh, that's kind of that's kinda cool. I'd love to kind of tell you guys a little bit about the Pool of Siloam, why this is so fascinating. So in this particular article, it actually says something to this effect. The half-mile running through the city of David from the Pool of Siloam up to the footsteps of the Western Wall and the Temple Mount represents, quote-unquote, the most significant half-mile on the planet. That's kind of big. Whatever this half-mile is, is pretty significant, at least according to this uh, archaeologist. It goes on to say, the discovery of the pool is evidence of history preserved. Some discoveries are theoretical. This one was undeniable. It is proof— that the story of the Bible is true. It's fascinating. Like I we, we took a trip there in 2020 and we actually walked through this. There's it's actually connected. So I'm gonna talk a little bit about this. So take a look at the, the the big photo that's at the very center of everything. So at the top one is the Temple Mount. So I want you to just get a little bit of a geographical picture in your mind of the region of Jerusalem so that's the very top it's the pinnacle the climax of the entire city so everything from Jerusalem goes downhill so in other words if you're ever going to go up to the city of Jerusalem you're always going to describe it as going up geographically to the city of Jerusalem but you can see it's a pretty lengthy steep you know uh road going all the way down so you can see this little pool that little blue thing down in the bottom right there that's the pool of Siloam and it's connected to where you can't really see because they, they carved away the city right there. That's not real. That's just a, you know, a, a drawing to kind of show that underneath it, there's a, there's a spring. That spring kind of goes underground underneath the entire uh, geography of the region. And there's a tunnel attached that's called Hezekiah's Tunnel. It's a f- fascinating feat of engineering way, 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 way back in the day. Um, but this Tunnel fed the water that was on there. It's this massive pool, so big. So some archaeologists actually believe it was around two football fields in length. In large, it's massive, massive area. Okay, so take a look at this uh, colorful picture right here. This is modern. This is that within the past, you know, couple of years. So these are the steps. They've actually found that kind of go uh, a portion down in that particular region. Um, This other image over here, it's kind of the same image right here, but it's just from another angle. But what I want you to imagine in your mind, um, what Jesus did here in the story that we just read probably would have taken place somewhere, maybe up towards the Temple Mount. Why, Why do we know that? Because if you're blind, which was pretty common malady in that, I mean, I don't know how common, like, in terms of percentage-wise, but if you had a particular malady like this, you would no doubt go to the regions where people have the greatest compassion and sympathy. Where would that be? Well, if you're going to go worship, you're going to go find someone that's got, you know, a desire to want to help someone else. So you go hang out up at the very top, right? You go hang out there. You hope you get some free lunch. You hope you get some money, whatnot, because you're totally dependent upon other people's uh, benevolence and goodwill so up at that particular region probably jesus would have interacted with this guy had this dialogue that we just read here um does this whole dramatization of spitting in the mud putting on this guy's eyes and then sending him all the way down like imagine i want you to imagine how far this is a half a mile half a mile and I'm not even sure how far. Maybe a half mile would be like from here to Costco. I don't know. Um, but downhill and then back uphill again It's pretty significant. Um, elevation is maybe, I don't know, 1,800 square feet, 2,000 square feet above sea level. Jerusalem, the top part, from the bottom. There. So it's, I mean, imagine like hiking from, you know, bottom of Madonna up to Madonna to the top. You know, something like that, something relative around there. So this guy is blind, walking down. He goes in, does what he's asked to do, and he now receives a sight. Imagine him walking back up those steps. Now, again, the steps were designed. We know this now um, because we're, we're learning this in these archaeological. This is what they just recently uncovered. They uncovered the steps going from the Pool of Siloam back up to the city. It's insane. They've never seen this here. And now, as they're walking up these steps, you can actually see. In fact, the steps are are uneven. You have, like, a step that big, and then you have another step that's, like, that big. And the uh, archaeologists actually believe the reason for that is as you're walking back up the steps, that if the steps are, like, that close, you can just mindlessly walk up, right? Because that's that's what you do, just mindlessly walk up. But they don't want you to mindlessly walk back up. Why? They want you to go slow. Why? Because they want you to look at the temple and rejoice. That Yahweh's there. So this guy, for the first time in his entire life, after being healed at the Pool of Siloam, at the very bottom there, he's, he's walking back. He's not feeling his way around. He's not touching the ground. He's not being led by someone. He's, lo- he's walking up the steps, this little slow, fast, slow, fast, looking up, observing, full of gratitude, thankfulness to Yahweh for what God had done. And he makes his way back up. And again, he has no he hasn't seen Jesus yet, by the way. He has no idea what Jesus looks like. He doesn 't have a you know an image in his mind of what Jesus looks like. all he knows is that he 's been healed, so this is a little bit of the geographical stuff um, uh, about this, and I think it's again it's something about this I, I I sense is really significant because what this tells us if anything is that these stories can be trusted that that the Bible, written throughout all of these years there's the Bible has gone undergone so much scrutiny over the past you know. Twenty, twenty-five, hundred years—so much so. But and it's kind of left a lot of people questioning: Can I even trust the Bible? Is it even trustworthy? Is it just written by you know hundreds and thousands of different people rewriting it and casting their own opinions and marginal notes and so on and so forth? And, and the answer is: is we can trust what Scripture says because archaeology is actually uncovering certain elements like this that are showing: oh, this actually happened, and now we can fill in certain pieces that maybe we didn't have before. So so your faith in Jesus, your faith that has been derived from Scripture, from historic Christian faith, um, is something that you can totally place your confidence in. You don't have to be ashamed of that. You don't have to feel as if you got to shy away from having a degree of confidence in what God has spoken and said because there is a lot of evidence that would prove that this is something that we can place our confidence in. So, so that's, that's that, um, taking a look at a little bit of the historical location. I'm going to move on a little bit to kind of this whole mud-making thing that happens here and ask a little bit of a question. Like, Why does Jesus do this? What's the whole aim? Um, before I even get to that, I'll just talk real briefly. Like, The, the question of like, human suffering obviously comes up. The disciples ask him, like, who, who sinned, this guy or his parents? Again, this kind of dovetails into some myths. Um, in terms of where does human suffering come from? Um, and, and I, wanna, I don't want to unpack that too deeply right now at this particular point, but this is an important question that we as humans today even wrestle with and ask ourselves. I was just watching news last night. It was happening in Morocco. Devastating. Another absolute devastating situation taking place. At that point last night, 2,000 people have lost their lives. Shocking. I mean, it's like mind-numbing, and, and numbers inspe- expected to increase. It's like, I, how do you categorize this? You know, people just going about their day or their evening, whatnot, and just not even knowing that this was going to be the the last day of their life. the The human suffering toll is on a scale next level. And and the question we as human beings ask this question: Why? Because we're made in the image of God. Like lions don't sit around like ponder the thought of like why is there, you know why do gazelle suffer. You know, why do other animals suffer? They're not, they're not, they don't care about this stuff. But we as human beings, we care about this stuff because we have some degree of moral understanding. Like there's right and there's wrong. And if people suffer, there's got to be a reason for this. Maybe it's wrong. Maybe, you know, as, as some famous uh, writers have written throughout the ages, whether it be atheists or agnostics, have suggested that either God is, is weak, so he's unable. He's, he's got a good heart. He truly, genuinely wants to help people, but he's weak. He's not capable or he has power and fully capable but he's morally a monster he he takes some sort of delight in watching suffering of human beings and so it's something like this is happening in the minds of their disciples as they're around this guy they see him blind they interact with jesus and they're doing what typical disciples and master would do in that particular day and age. They would walk through the city. They would just observe life. They would ask questions. The rabbi, Jesus, would respond. In this particular context was, who sinned, these, this guy or his parents? And Jesus basically corrects him and says, you guys are asking the wrong question. It's the wrong question. This is not the right way to approach this. It has nothing to do with his sin. It has nothing to do with sin of, of, of parents. Again, we can go through a, a debrief of this particular um, idea at some other point. But what I want to focus on right now is Jesus' response to this is is powerful. Um, In spite of where the source of suffering comes from or pain, uh, Jesus responds to it. Jesus lowers himself to this guy's level and spits on the ground, makes mud, and puts it on his eyes, and then sends them off. And this kind of raises the question, why did Jesus do this? Like, what was happening here? And there's a lot of reasons that people have responded to, and if you have like a uh, you know, a Bible that might have marginal notes or commentary and all that, there's there's a variety of reasons as to why. I think, uh, I'm not going to go through all the reasons, but um, one, several reasons I would say, one particular teacher gave a couple reasons I thought were really valid, so I'll just kind of share these with you, because I thought they, they were worth sharing. Um, there's at least two things that, He has suggested that Jesus is doing this whole mud-making type of dramatization. Um, Number one, I I think Jesus is acting in a prophetic uh, role, right? Like Isaiah or Ezekiel or some of these other ancient prophets of old, where it was not uncommon for them to act out things in very dramatic fashions. I mean, I think it was Isaiah takes off his clothes and walks around like in his underwear. And the whole idea behind that was like, what the heck is the prophet doing? And it was his way of saying, hey, you guys are going to be walking around in your own shame. So repent from your sin. Otherwise, you're going to be finding yourselves walking around in shame. I mean, it's a pretty dramatic type of a uh, way of going about your your, your job, right? So Jesus seems to be functioning in this particular level of dramatization. Um, The second thing I think is important to note that it's possible that Jesus also, and, and I say this, and I'll kind of backtrack and kind of explain this a little bit. Jesus seems to be insulting the legalistic blindness of the Pharisees. In what way? So, again, for you, to maybe even for some of you to even think about Jesus and the word insult in the same sentence um, seems maybe a little bit off-putting, but Jesus is not afraid or have problems with casting insults where insults need to be rightly like placed, right? So, Jesus seems to be insulting a system that's at play here. So, Jesus was not against Judaism. Jesus was not even really against the Pharisees because he had some... Relationships with some, some of the Pharisees. Jesus seems to be against the overemphasis. Hear, hear me out. Overemphasis upon the traditions. That they they elevated the traditions that they held to higher than God and higher than human human beings. Jesus seems to be very against that. And this is what religious... Situations and institutions oftentimes do now mind you I was if I had longer time today to preach, I would be even going into some of this as well. Religious institutions are not just simply religious they 're also secular i 'll talk more about that actually next week. There are secular institutions functioning in society today in California today that are that are not Christian, not religious they don 't believe in a higher being like God, but they function as a religious institution that has rules and has Right and wrong, and moral identity, and who's to blame, and who's our scapegoat, and who should we accuse, and who should we cancel, and whatnot. But the point of the matter is, the religious leaders had this system that Jesus seems to be coming against. So, why does Jesus spit on the mud and spit on the ground and then make this mud? Now, In the Mishnah, which was a very well-known series of teachings in the first century, uh, they had what was called the Mishnah Torah, and they had some writings in there on what was called the Shabbat or the Sabbath day. So there was all sorts of prohibitions. So if you were a follower of Yahweh, you were Jewish, and you were wanting to be faithfully committed to Yahweh God, you would basically be part of the institution. Part of the institution would be you would be submitted to these rabbis or these Pharisees, and these Pharisees would be submitted to these uh, writings known as the Mishnah and whatnot. And these would be basically teachings or series of sermons that were codified within a particular book, and it goes all the way back to the Babylonian uh, you know, several hundred years prior. So anyways, one of the laws that they had was that on the Sabbath, they actually prohibited, get this, spitting on the ground. So in other words, if you had a spit, right, you got a cold or whatever, you're going to spit, wait, save your spit in your mouth until you can spit on a rock. Do not spit on the pathway, because if you spit on the, the, the soil or the dirt, then that commingling of your saliva with the soil will actually create uh, clay. And you're, you're not allowed, that's like an action. It's a work. You should not work on the Sabbath. And spitting on the ground on clay makes clay, and that's an actual work. So do not make clay on the Shabbat. So what does Jesus do? Right? Spits on the ground. And I, I personally think that part of this is like an insult. His, his way of basically saying, I really want to just very clearly point out who has the real blindness here. I think, I think Jesus is controversial sometimes. Jesus says things sometimes that are just sort of a finger in the eye, a little bit of an eye poke, to just say, here, your whole institutions that are causing problem and consternation for other people and keeping them at bay are so hyper-focused on... Other types of laws or legalisms or saying the right thing or doing the right thing in a particular right way. But overlooking human suffering, it's as if Jesus is saying, I'm going to insult this because it's worthy of insult. So he spits on the ground and he makes mud and he puts it on this guy's eyes. I think there's another thing that's also taking place here that Jesus also seems to be identifying himself and his role. Now, this kind of plays in the larger picture. Now, if you go back to chapter 8, uh, you realize that when Jesus is dialoguing with these religious leaders, uh, he says something to them like, hey, my father is working, and I'm working. So they're asking him, you know, what right do you have Jesus to be doing X, Y, and Z? And Jesus is like, look, my father, Yahweh, Yahweh God is working. And because Yahweh God's working, I'm also working. And then they push back at Jesus, and they're like, who is your father? Your mom's a prostitute. We don't know who your father is. I mean, they're... They're basically, and this is an issue that we can, we can read over this and not really understand what's happening here. But in the first century, it's really important to note that in the first century, the whole idea of inheritance and heirship was essential and critical. And so when Jesus comes on the scene, he's like, hey, my father's working. And they're basically challenging Jesus's lineage. Like, we don't know your father. You, you have no claim. You have no right. You have no legitimacy to be doing what you're doing. Show us where your legitimacy comes from. And so that was chapter 8. Chapter 9, Jesus spits on the ground, makes this mud, puts it on this guy's eyes, sends him to the pool of uh, Siloam. He gets healed, comes back, and this creates this whole controversial scenario that's taking place and unfolding. Now, there's another writing in the first century that was also important. I'm going to read this to you. So again, um, some of us, I venture to guess, majority of us here are not Jewish, which means that we're probably not familiar of first century writings that would have been very familiar to people back in the day. So if I were to ask, you know, most of you today to show me what line this Luke, I am your father, comes from. Like most of us, like most of us, other, unless you were, you know, living in Iraq or something like that. Um, most of us would know exactly where Luke, I am your father, comes from. Like we know that instinctively, right? We all know it comes from Lord of the Rings. Anyways, but you get the idea. So, so there's phrases and ideas or actions that can be done. Or oh, here's one I'm really, 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 really ridiculously good looking. That's not I'm saying about me. Where's that from, Zoolander? Right. Good job. Good job. All right. I can keep going, but you get the idea. I'm not saying about me. I'm just saying about Zoolander. You guys get the idea. So there's certain lines that we know instinctively because it's associated with something that was very common and part of a you know larger meme and culture and society. The, the same is true for a first century. Same mystery for the first century. Um, they would have been very familiar with these variety of writings. They would have been part of their normal warp and woof of life. They would have been quoting them. They would have heard them. Um, and so there was a writing in what was called Batra 126 that states something like this, that the tr- there's a tradition. That it says this, the saliva of a firstborn son has the power to heal blindness. Um, read it again. The saliva of a firstborn son has the power to heal blindness. In this particular writing, uh, in Baba Batra 126, there is a discussion, like a case study. And it starts something like this. Two sons who have a dispute over their territory, they approach the rabbi. And then it begins to like, sound like a good joke. And then the rabbi goes on to say he's trying to discern which one is actually the firstborn son. Why? Because whoever the firstborn son gets the inheritance. This is, this is a big deal right? In other words, you get the the milk cows, you get the chickens, you get the goats. If you're the second-born son, you get nothing, unless the first-born son likes you. So you better be on good terms with the first-born son. But now we got a dispute, because both of them are claiming to be the first-born son, okay? So they come to this rabbi, and they're both in this dispute, and then the rabbi has this, this mark of wisdom, where he knows this story. So he goes, finds a blind man. Again, it's all part of the writings there that Jesus' followers might have been familiar with. And he finds this blind person. Then he says to one of the guys, he says, I want you to uh, spit on the ground, make mud, put on this guy's eyes, and nothing happens. Second guy spits on the ground, puts on his eyes, and this guy's blindness is gone. Again, is this real? Probably not. It's just a myth. But the point of the matter is the myth still would have been in circulation in that day. And so if, if, if that story is actually the backstory of what's happening here, then what Jesus is doing here is mind-boggling. What is he saying? I think what he's saying is something like this. Jesus, through this dramatization, he's basically saying, you guys have been asking me about my legitimacy, about who my father is, by questioning who he is and where I come from. Jesus hawks a loogie, spits on the ground, and heals this guy. Dude, it's powerful. Like what Jesus is doing here through this dramatization is he's literally just saying, you think you know everything. You know nothing. You are fools. You are blind leading the blind. I am the one who has come from the Father, representing the Father, bringing forth the Father's goodness, which is life. And healing and wholeness and opening blind eyes and unstuffing blocked ears and taking people's palsies and broken bodies and bringing healing and wholeness to them. And taking those people that are off in the margins and forgotten about or shunned or shamed and showing them kindness and goodness and bringing them back into the community. Jesus, I think, very clearly is is, is stating in unambiguous terms, my father, Yahweh God. And I'm the firstborn representative. That is the heir of all that Yahweh God has to deliver. It's pretty powerful. So I want to read the very next scene, and I'm, I'm going to conclude. Because as we go on, I think the second scene that kind of steps in here is what I'm just calling confusion. It says, then the neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar, they were saying, is this not the man that used to sit here and beg? Some said... It's him. Others said, No, it's a guy that looks like him. But he kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes open? And he answered, The man called Jesus, made mud, anointed my eyes, and he said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and I washed and I received my sight. And then he said, Where is he now? And he said, I have no, no clue. So within this is obviously confusion. They're just like, Who is this really the guy? I have no idea. But he comes on, and he basically just testifies. Like, like, I don't know how this happened. I don't even know why he did it, why he, ch- why he chose me. But he did. And all he know now is as he's still processing the reality of what happened in his life, all he knows now is his entire life has been appended and changed. I mean, imagine, here's a guy that has, like, lived the entirety of his existence, showing up and being 100% dependent upon other people's kindness, goodness, welfare, and now, he doesn't, he doesn't need to show up there anymore. He's, his life's changed. All these patterns and habits and traditions and rituals that he had been following in for so long are, are, are done. are no longer, that's the case anymore. He's, he's, he's going to be living a brand new existence. He doesn't know exactly how or why this happened, but all he knows is that Jesus tells him something and he goes and does what Jesus tells him to do. And I want to end on this note. What's Jesus calling you to do? What is Jesus collectively, as a, for us as a community, what's he asking us to do? I think first and foremost, like, a lot of us, we, we want some sort of experience with God or we want some sort of supernatural thing that's going to sweep us up off of our feet. But really, I think everything kind of goes back to this initial, like, like what is Jesus calling me or inviting me as a human being to step into doing? I think it begins first and foremost with just do what I say. She just said, go wash. I mean, this guy could have argued and been like, that's not going to work. I mean, he could have played the skeptic and be like, spit, come on, in my eyes, pull a Siloam. It's really far away. That's a long distance for me to travel. There's no way this is going to work. This doesn't make scientific proof or fact. There's, none of this makes any sense. He could have done all that, but he does respond to Jesus, and he receives from Jesus' hand this Kindness is grace. So I think this kind of brings us back to this initial reality. of Like, what is Jesus inviting us into? What's he calling you to do? Where's the step of faith he's asking of you to step out, trust me? Maybe there's things he's saying, don't do this. Don't go down this path. Don't walk down this corridor. Don't make that choice. What's he calling us to do? His words are always going to be proof of life. That's what he invites us into. And on this note, what I want to do right now is I want to conclude and then kind of set the stage for the next few scenes as we're going to look at this next week. Again, like I said, we'll get into the interrogation, the investigation, his excommunication. And then I think one of the most beautiful aspects of all this is that even though this guy gets booted out of society and the social life of Judaism, um, the very last little movement of this whole segment, verse 35, this is that Jesus goes out and finds him you got to love this about jesus this is this is jesus you know we live in a world today that is really trying hard to make sense of human suffering the philosophy of buddhism says something like this suffering has is a part of the inherent reality of, of existence of life. Oftentimes it's attached to our desires. So in other words, if you love something and when that something breaks or dies, you're going to suffer as a result of that. So one of the ways in which suffering is eliminated or lessened by way of the, Buddhism, uh, the, the, the Buddhist type of mindset is by eliminating desire and following the Eightfold Path. Um, within the construct of Hinduism, suffering is kind of a natural part of what's called the samsara, the cycle of birth, life, and death. It's oftentimes motivated or driven by one's karma. So in other words, what you've done in past lives is going to come back and revisit you in this life. So the things that are happening are just kind of part. The best thing that you can do in our world today is just be the best person you can. Be kind, help other people. So no matter what type of misfortune happens to you, just choose a different path. I want just pause and think about that. That's, 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 a, that's a tall order to do, especially in the throes of intense suffering. Within Islam, uh, the framework of Islam, suffering comes at the hand of Allah as a means of testing one's faith. By being patient, submitting to Allah in times of hardship, oftentimes will will gain you reward at the hand of Allah. In the secular world in which we live in today, in other words, non-religious world, what we would define as sort of existentialism, the idea of existence. Where does existence come from? It goes something like this. Suffering happens. And it's your responsibility. Like suffering happens, period. Like we can just stop right there. Suffering happens. Yes, earthquakes take place, 2,000 die, more waiting to die. Yes, fires on Maui happen and suffering takes place, people die. Yes, cancer happens and yes, miscarriages take place and yes, pain happens. Yes, divorce takes place. Yes, suffering is just a part of life. Um, the best thing that you could do. Is it is your responsibility within the framework of existentialism to find meaning in life despite unfair external conditions and create order and values even in the midst of your suffering? I just want you to pause and think about that. Do you realize how exhausting that will leave you? You are responsible now, on one hand there 's a part of the segment of society in American culture that 's just like yes, empowering. But what happens if you cannot rise above that? What happens if the suffering just keeps stroking you down every single time you lift your head above the wave? Another set of 16 waves come in, one after the next, in rapid fire motion. Now what? Only the gospel, only Christianity comes in and says, in the midst of wave upon wave upon wave. Of suffering and pain and hardship, enters a God into your dilemma to rescue you, to heal your blindness, to save you. How? By himself being tumbled in the waves, by himself being throttled and ruined and destroyed and crushed and pressed on every side. He is a high priest that we can turn to that knows our pain and suffering like no one else in all of history. We can turn to him and trust him. I'm done. I want to invite you to stand. I want to pray over us right now. And I also want to invite you, like, if you're here this morning and you need prayer for anything, I want to have some people up as soon as I'm done that would be here to pray with you. I'll be available to pray with you as well. But I want to just pray for us right now. And no matter where you're at, no matter what types of circumstances you're going through, that this is a God that sees you, that knows you, that loves you, and is for you. And my hope would be that there would be enough, like, reality or truth that has been unfolded here by Scripture that would cause you to realize, oh, he can be trusted too. He can be trusted too with your life, your pain, your hardship. So I'm going to pray for us. And then we'll dismiss. Jesus, thank you so much for uh, you stepping into this earth, uh, taking upon yourself our humanity. You know what it's like to be rejected and to suffer and to have people accuse you. You know what it's like to be misunderstood. You know what it's like to have the mob come against you. You You know all these things. And God, because of that, we have a high priest that we can look to and trust. So, Lord, I pray that you would give us the ability to hear what it is that you're calling us to step into, to hear your voice and to obey it. Give us everything we need. Meet people right where they're at and bring deliverance in those areas that we need deliverance. We pray and ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.